This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Catherine Nichols here with Elisa Gabbard, and this is Lit Century, a podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our year is 1973, and we'll be talking about Ernest Becker's The Denial of Death. For a summary, um, the book is an exploration of what Becker sees as an essentially human desire that people have to extend themselves beyond their natural lifespan. So um, that could be through having children or creating artwork that would still be enjoyed beyond the artist's life or um, making some important political action or fighting in a war. The book itself goes through many possible implications of this urge uh, through psychology, he talks about Freud a lot, and philosophy, he talks about Kierkegaard um, and other people. Uh, Becker has a lot of theories about all kinds of things. We uh, are not going to talk about all of them, um, but the whole book is centered on thinking about the ways people live with the knowledge that they will die. So on to our conversation. All right, Elisa. Uh, so we both read Ernest Becker's The Denial of Death. Um, and you recommended it to me after I wrote you an email saying that art felt less satisfying to create because I felt like the future no longer um, had continuity for me because of global warming and that this had sort of, it, it meant that I didn't enjoy writing fiction anymore as much as I used to, because I didn't have the belief that there's such a thing as a hundred years of future in which there's some possibility that someone would read my book. Uh, and you said, have I got a book for you? <laughs> <laughs> like, let, I mean, you didn't say that because you're not from the 1950s, but like, um, <laughs> Oh, you, you said like I am actually after after reading this book. <laughs> okay, good point. <laughs> Staunchly mid-century now. Uh, it, yeah, no. So you said like I think that you would really like this, I, and I, um, I just I loved it. I I hated it, but I loved it. Ah! I want to know how did you come upon it? How did you get started on it? Oh, well, first of all, I'm so happy that you that you read it and that you loved it. Um, <laughs> so improbably, I I first, to my knowledge, you know, I'm sure this this has been in the back of my consciousness just from like being in the culture because you know it won the Pulitzer Prize and it used to be a really big deal. It was in Annie Hall. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the first time that I like consciously became aware of it was last year reading um, Louise Glick's latest book, Winter Recipes from the Collective, there's a poem in there called The Denial of Death. And there's just, there's an explicit reference um, at the end of the poem where she writes, what was it called? A travel diary, I think you said, though I often called it The Denial of Death after Ernest Becker. And, um, you know, part, partly out of curiosity and partly because I was planning to write about the book, I was I like, just made a mental note, like, oh, look up the denial of death or Speck or what is that? Um, and I decided to try to, when I saw that it was a book, I, I decided to try to request it from my library. And oddly enough, even though this is from what, 1974, 1975, there were like eight or nine copies in my library system, but they were all checked out. Wow. <laughs> which I know, which usually only happens with like brand new hot 
books, you know? <laughs> so I was like, what's going on here? Why is this book like having a moment? And, and the, the, the Louise Glick <laughs> book like wasn't even out yet. So it's like, there's no way it's because of <laughs> this Glick poem, you know? Yeah. I was like, why is everybody interested in this book again? I, you know, I thought like, okay, maybe somebody's like teaching this in Denver. So a bunch of students have a chat. I don't know. But then I like randomly saw that a couple of other people I know were, were reading it. And when I asked them why they were just like, I don't know, I just heard about it somehow. And it's kind of interesting. So it's some kind of odd moment of like cultural confluence that everybody just got interested in this book again. <laughs> well, it, it just felt like it attached so completely to those feelings that I was having. And it gave me yeah. work that I both accept and reject for why I was feeling that way. Uh-huh. Um, and I just, I wonder, like, I almost want to just like put out a survey that we could read. <laughs> so like, I want to know what everyone else thinks about it right now. Like, what does it feel like to read the denial yeah. of in 2022? Yeah. You know, so I had this, this experience reading it, um, like within the first 10 pages, I, I was just automatically like, oh, this is one of those books that explain everything. <laughs> Yeah, I have like yeah. a little personal canon of those books. Um, and I was just like super into it. And it does, it feels like one of those like frameworks for, for living or for thinking that you can make it explain everything, even if you don't like fully agree with it. You know, it's kind of like how like Newtonian physics works in for large objects, but not small objects. Like Absolutely. <laughs> it's yeah. like, if I'm in the right mood, I can make this framework totally explain all of my experiences and everything in life. And then of course, you know, you, you can, you can poke holes in it. <laughs> but it's like, in a way it's like not even poking holes. It was more like, I always say the alphabet starting with ABC and Becker is saying the same alphabet, but he's starting with like ZYX. <laughs> everything you're saying is familiar, but it also feels almost perfectly backward from what I think. Oh, that's fascinating. I want to get to that in a minute, but I also like, I, I want to make sure that, that I don't like skip anything that you want to say more about sort of the context in which you approached it. Yeah. I, um, <sighs> I mean, I had so little context, really, you know, like, I, like I mentioned in a poem, <laughs> I really yeah. didn't know anything about it. Um, but I mean, I really, uh, I think part of the reason it resonated with me so much is because I spent so much of last year thinking about um, just the concept of bad faith. Yeah. And feeling trapped. Um, so I actually, I gave this talk late last year where I opened by talking about, um, kind of how, how strange it is to me that I've lived in the same apartment for 10 years because John and I don't really love this apartment that much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but like every year when our lease came up, we always had a good reason for sort of just putting off moving for another year. And so we just kind of kept hitting snooze on that decision until a decade of our lives went by. Yeah. And it's this combination of kind of inertia and uncertainty where even though we we knew we didn't want to stay here forever, we didn't know what our next move would be. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, <clears throat> in a sense, we're we're existentially living inauthentically because <laughs> this isn't yeah. like the life we chose, and yet, um, and yet, like, you know, it's like the 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 trap door is open, but we just keep huddling down in the trap. Um, that's interesting and I just uh, this book really kind of expands on that idea in an interesting way um, which you know for those who haven't read it it's there's this thread in it about the fact that like we can't really allow ourselves to live fully like to embrace sort of ecstatic freedom or ecstatic happiness because 
then we just automatically become aware of, you know, the fragility <laughs> of that happiness um, and that our lives are going to end and, you know, that our, our great love will die and so forth. And so it's, it's a self-protective measure to not allow yourself to be too hysterically happy um, because then you're not always worried about it ending. Um, so I think that like, I was reading it soon after reading Freud. Um, I, I had um, done an episode of the podcast with Jessica Gross on um, civilization and its discontents. The big contradictions in Freud that really stays with me is the question of whether we're essentially alone or essentially in the context of the other people that are alive at the same time as us. Like which one is sort of the truth? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Freud, it's like, I don't know that he ever necessarily consciously sees that as a conflict in his work, but he's always coming up against it. Like, um, and I, I saw this Becker one as continuing that conflict, but even uh, just walking that line of like, are people essentially individuals or are they essentially kind of instances of their community? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I feel like he was just like, just like every sentence of this book was essentially about that question. Like even the idea that, um, so like one of the central arguments of the book is that we have this awareness that we will individually die. And so we have an urge to do something heroic to um, sort of extend ourselves beyond our own natural lives. Um, And that could be having children, or it could be like some major action that would affect the future. Um, Or, right, like the world. Participating in a war. Participating in a war, or yeah, like doing some major piece of artwork. If you have, like, he talks a lot about talent in this way. Right. (laughs) Only people with talent have uh, (laughs) have the option to do that. Exactly. It felt very mid 20th century understanding of what talent is and how it operates. But um, anyway, so, but he describes this as a neurosis and he says, like, you're coming up against the truth. Your creaturely truth is that you will die. So he he talks about like the the Kauzasui project, meaning like the creation of yourself, the creation of the idea that you have the self that's more precious than just an animal that will eventually die and that is more important and it just has to keep going somehow. And I was thinking, isn't that just being a social animal that you have a feeling of loneliness if you don't have a society around you that is contemporary with you? And you have a feeling of loneliness toward the future if you don't have a feeling that your efforts in some way contribute to life continuing after your own life. Mm. And uh, so he talks about it fully as like, it's a neurosis, it's an illusion, it's something that we have to believe even though we know it's false. And I was like, well, where are you getting your sense of truth here? Like, what's your epistemology of, of truth? Like, it's sort of like, all these people believe the lie that they need vitamin C and then they also happen to die if they don't have vitamin C. Isn't this this strange mass hysteria that they're all so wild about oranges? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So like, why are you, why do you get to decide or why is it? Why is, what's even the cultural pressure that makes you believe that this is false, that this isn't an actual sort of essential human need on par with I don't know food water etc like he describes the need for society as something from the past that we are continued into you know like oh we believe that we'll die we believe that we're like less safe if we don't have friends because of you know maybe a lion is hunting us and caveman days which you know all the anthropology of that I want to kind of set aside and say no we need friends now this is a life or death proposition now. Like even if, yeah. it, even if you don't think of like a GoFundMe, it's like, where do people get jobs that would give them health insurance or, you know, money for food? Like all of it 
comes from a network of social interdependence? Yeah, I, I think my my response to that is like, I, I absolutely see what you're saying. Um, yeah. I think I think why he characterizes it as a lie is because the symbols are arbitrary. Um, so it's not it's not that we don't need the symbolic system. I think he is saying we need the symbolic system, but that yeah. um, you know, in any given kind of society or civilization, the symbols are going to be totally different. And, you know, kind of most crucially and devastatingly, <laughs> like in this postmodern world, um, we don't really have any good symbol systems. Like we've rejected religion mostly. Not everybody has rejected religion, but enough people have rejected religion that it's like, it's not Even, just like a stand-in for society generally. I agree. Yeah. 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 You, you, you can't just trust like, oh, everybody agrees that, you know, this is the way it works, um, which, you know, you need other people to believe in the fantasy so that you can also believe in the fantasy. If it's just you, it, it fails. Yeah. So I actually, when he talks about like modernity and the idea of the death of God, I was thinking like, what is the social pressure that would make a whole lot of people start thinking God has died is a reasonable thing to say. Like, what do, they, what do you mean when you say that? Because it doesn't mean that nobody's religious anymore. It does mean something about like, if you invest in these symbols, you don't know that anyone will still be investing in them when you're old. You don't know that someone will still be investing in them such that your wisdom is kind of respected when you're no longer physically strong enough to contribute mm. through work. Like you don't, you don't know that you won't just be kind of thrown out, but the sort of the cultural stuff that you're investing in when you're young will actually still be relevant when you're old. Um, that even if you do invest in religion, it could well be that everybody's just like, what Scientology that's for jerks, you know, like you don't know that there'll be that continuity. And I was yeah. thinking, okay, is it just, is like God is dead. Does that just mean that technology and culture suddenly started changing really quickly? So nobody really knows how to do TikTok. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, like, I remember friends there, therefore I can't do TikTok. Um, <laughs> therefore I will die alone. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a, I'm not an expert on the sort of history of that idea, but I, I've always thought of it as being about um, as you say, like technological change and, um, you know, the, the rise of sort of the ascendancy of science and rationality in the 20th century, um, just kind of destroying that essential sense of the numinous and the mysterious um, that we needed a concept of God to, you know, to explain like why we're here and so forth. Um, yeah, and, I, and then there was this, there, there was this idea in the 20th century that's like, oh, we don't need that. We can explain everything, you know, through the power of our own minds. Like we are gods. I I agree with you that that's what I have in general understood people mm -hmm. to mean when they say God is dead or whatever. Like we killed we kill God by going to the moon. We know that it's not sort of a, a goddess. It's a rock, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, but I, I still feel like that, that feeling of fear that Becker is talking about the feeling that what has been taken away from you, like, it's not like, oh, well, rationality and uh, science can replace this mm -hmm. the way that it could, um, you know, replace the goddess idea of the moon with a rock idea of the moon. It's like, you had this, now you have that. But mm -hmm. so why is there fear? Why would there be fear? And it's like, well, there would be fear because you don't know what you can contribute to that is actually contributing to like the world, like that you actually still are in a society, which isn't just a matter of like, I mean, he talks about it as like transference. It's like, oh, it's just like you're a baby and society is your protective father. And it's like, well, but also it's very literally your life and death protection against everything that happens because- mm -hmm 
you know, that's how human beings operate. I don't know. I, I just think he goes through a lot of this, like, oh, there's transference here so that we have this psychological need. And I was like, these needs are so literal. Well, you know, I think it's funny how um, just how thoroughly everything has to be like either for or against Freud. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, um, it's funny because he's not like, he's not a psychotherapist. Um, he does talk about Freud a lot. He, yeah, I mean, he fucking loves Freud, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> even though he like you know deeply disagrees with them. It's just it's so it's hilarious to me how important Freudian and psychoanalytic concepts still were in the seventies. Like that's just the terms that everybody thought of culture through. Like. Yeah, there's yeah. a whole section in this book about fetishes, like explaining, oh my <laughs> explaining the foot fetish or the shoe fetish fetish in terms of, um, in terms of our you know our our great death anxiety in the face of, like, yeah, eternity, and there's um, yeah, there's a whole section about transference and how like the the exact thing that happens when you go see your therapist is what happens, um you know, essentially when we're like listening to Beyonce. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I just think that like all of his terms for basically people connecting with each other uh-huh. are so, um, he's like, you know, people uh, admiring somebody or having a crush. It's like the slavishness that comes into your soul. And they're like, yes, that is a lot, dude. Like, yes. Our desire to be hypnotized. Other. I mean, I, I love that. Like I, I love psychoanalytic writing, like even if I disagree with it, just because I, I love how like aggrandizing and swoony it is about everything, you know, like it, it, just turns, it turns everything into this like great system of symbols. And I find it to be great fun. I, I like that interpretation. Cause I think like when we were like even like you're texting or whatever about the the fetish section and we mm-hmm. were just like do people even still have fetishes or people just like stuff? it seems like i don't think they of, do <laughs> the degree I, of, I don't know anyone with a fetish <laughs> well or yeah it, it's like all of society simultaneously just embraced it and also completely moved on no longer mm-hmm. think that it has this big swoony importance that you're describing Right. Um, the, just like the way that he describes, um, uh, he describes like the arch of the the shoe. Mm. I'm just like that's that's pretty persuasive. Like maybe I have a shoe fetish now, you know. <laughs> but also like sadomasochism is like this problem that we have to explain, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> what, well, like problem. But also he he goes through that thing where he says, um, you know, every fetishist thinks that their fetish is sort of a natural quantity. It's so obviously good and exciting and thrilling and amazing. Mm-hmm. But that's only true of this one fetish which is sadomasochism. That's the only one that actually is truly natural quantity, like good and thrilling. And I'm like, hmm, are you telling us that this is actually your fetish? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. The whole, I mean, the whole section about like mental illness is. That one was the toughest like, to get through for me. Wait, what? Oh, it was just tougher for me to get through. I was just. Like, yeah, hey, no, I mean, oh, it's, do it's these people lack courage and these people also ooh, lack courage. And yeah, it's it's squirmy. Um, it's it's so outdated. Um, but like, I do want to say, even though like, you know, part of me wants to just like rip that section out of the book. I'm like, oh, God, yeah. no, stop, Ernest. Yeah. Um, the things that he said about depression, I actually found oddly insightful and like relevant to my own experience of depression. Oh, wait, um, on. say more. Yeah. Uh, well, like there's this part about like, oh, of course the depressed person feels, um, guilty. And, you know, I, I think the treatment of guilt is interesting throughout the book. I you know he says that like a lot of people feel guilty about sex, which, you know, maybe not so much anymore, but <laughs> I yeah. guess in the seventies they did, um, yeah. because it's like this reminder of our like automatic biological nature, like, you know, all, all people and all worms and all birds 
have to have sex. And so (laughs) it reminds us of our creatureliness. Um, And that's why we feel guilty. And and partly that we develop bizarre sexual tastes so that we feel more unique and less, um, less like just one of the species. But the thing about guilt related to depression was like, oh, it's, um, it's sort of an, like an unconscious strategy because like, if you tell the people around you that you, you feel um, this overwhelming sense of guilt and that you don't deserve to live, like they're, they're forced to reassure you that you are important and you do matter. And so it's, it's feeding that need for, you know, quote unquote, cosmic specialness, um, which you feel deficient of in your daily life. So it's like a sneaky way to kind of get people to give you what you need, you know, when they're trying to tell you like yourself, your life matters. Yeah. Like to Um, say like, Oh, my life doesn't matter. That's just my depression talking. And then you can dismiss it that way as opposed to just being like, no, no, actually. But yeah, I I mean, as, as much as, you know, obviously you can't, you can't explain all depression in those, in those terms, (laughs) like it's much more complicated than that. And, you know, it, it's, it's different it's different if you're sort of situationally depressed versus like kind of biologically depressed, um, that there's overlap of course. So, yeah, I mean, it's all, all of that part about like, Oh, now we have to explain why some people are schizophrenic in in these terms. Um, it's just, it's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't hold water. Like really at all. it's a very leaky bucket, but I still found that there was like interesting writing and interesting insights, um, in that section. I wanted to make sure we touched on um anality <laughs> oh, yeah yeah okay let's, t- let's touch on anality super relevant to your interests of course <laughs> um I mean this is this is one of those other like Freudian terms to find the world there's a there's a section called the meaning of anality uh-huh. which I just love as a phrase um and you know it's, it's essentially the same thing the rest of the book is about you know this book is very prismatic in that way where he, he's completely saying the same thing over and over and over again for 300 pages or whatever but it stays interesting because he keeps saying it in slightly different new. ways yeah. <laughs> um but yeah so the idea is that you know the fact that we have to shit is one of the terrible daily reminders of our own like lowliness um and the fact that we're all gonna like go back, back to the earth and become fancy worm food. Um, but there's also this part that kind of like knock my socks off. <laughs> it's like when children notice that like you poop in a toilet and then you flush it and it disappears. That's like, that creates the sense of great anxiety because anything could just disappear. <laughs> like it makes them realize that the world is totally unstable and they can't hold on to anything at all. Yeah. I, um, I wonder if that's true for children who, I mean, there's so many ways that children are potty trained that don't involve flush toilets. Like for instance, I know, right. Um, (laughs) And like certainly for most of the history of humanity. Yeah. (laughs) Shit didn't just go away magically. I do think the fact that bodies contain both the potential for cleanliness and the potential for like yuckiness Mm-hmm. Um, like, I do think that that's just such a basic experience of, um, well, I guess being a social animal again, of like mm-hmm. you, you aren't just inherently ready for company. You have to clean yourself. You have to poop somewhere that's far away from the group. You have to sort of, um, like beat back the entropy of your body in order to be ready for company. Right. Um, And I, I think that that anxiety, it's not a neurosis. It's the truth. It's like the authentic truth of being an animal that lives in groups. And I don't think that it's like, Oh, this is the anxiety that separates us from animals. I think it's probably an anxiety that every social animal feels. Yeah, that's that's one of those things that um, I can't fully get on board with in this book is the idea that like 
you know, where we're the, we're the only animals that are sort of aware of, of death. Um, I mean, maybe the science just wasn't there yet, but like apes do more in their dead, elephants more in their dead. Um, probably crows do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like lots of animals do well, like crows, plants do whether or not they're sad about it. They do get mad. So that's- Right. As someone, I, a poet I know said on Twitter last night, actually like, Oh, we're not smart enough to know um, how smart plants are because she had seen some like Ann, Ann Carson poem where she said, plants don't lie. And she was like, we don't know that plants don't lie. Actually, I think plants obviously do lie. Who was the poet who said this? Ann Carson. Oh, sorry. Um, no, Ann, Carson. Ann Carson said plants don't lie. Jessica oh, yeah. Smith was the okay, poet I, I know who said that they do. Attributing <laughs> yeah. it correctly. That's a really good point. I think it's a really good point. Yeah, um, yeah I think that um, it, like the, the sort of questions of like the questions of life that are constant anxieties are not something uh, like, you know, where's my next meal going to come from? How do I make sure I'm pooping far away from the group? How do I make sure that I'm like uh, maintaining my, my relationships appropriately so that I'm protected if I need a GoFundMe or something? Mm-hmm. Um, like all of those things are, um, it's like they're not, they're not symbolic, even though the way that they are maintained can be symbolic, but it's like having a shared symbol is how you maintain a relationship. Right. I mean, yeah, there is a need in this book to sort of explain everything in terms of. Like it's an instinct that isn't actually like truth sensitive. Right. Like it's, I guess there's this real dualism in psychology where like, you you know, there's this desire to explain everything in terms of mental structures. Um, But yeah, like (laughs) a lot of it is just biological, as you say. And if you're not looking at it as like, well, the mind is one thing and the body is another thing. Like if they're the same, you know, they're made out of the same material. Um, It's, it's not as neat as that. Yeah, I, I agree with you that, um, that a lot of this 20th century psychological stuff, um, well, okay, two things. One is that we are now way deeper into the concept of neurodiversity. And Mm -hmm. two is I think we are much more persuaded by um, like the brain, just having physical functioning that can function in different ways. And some of those ways are schizophrenic and it isn't like oh it's because your mom looked at you funny one time you know yeah (laughs) um but I also think that maybe we underestimate like just because it is the thing that that our current era is sort of reacting against Mm-hmm. the need for understanding like what are your personal symbols and how are you actually acting symbolically or thinking symbolically when you're sort of like living the patterns of your life mm-hmm. um, just because that was obviously something that they were so into at this point right but yeah, so, I mean, just to return to my initial reason for reading this book, like how much is it symbolic and how much is it actually just uh, like a basic human need that I want there to be a future in which there's a society in which like my name is on some stuff that or some stuff I did still exists. Um, like in some ways, according to this book, that would just be like, a consolation for the fact that I'll die and um, sort of like a lie I'm telling to comfort myself about that fact. But, but then I look around at all of the ways that people are behaving. And I think like maybe our society has reached its maximum ability to sustain people not believing in a future beyond their own deaths. Mm. Like if people would believe in a society that that still matters, that still exists beyond their individual lives. Like, wouldn't we have 
some way of dealing with global warming or the pandemic or any of it, you know? Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, if you asked Richard Dawkins, yeah, um, not that you would want to talk to him, <laughs> like <laughs> he would say, oh, it's just, it's, it's completely about, you know, the, the perpetuation of the human gene and um, it's, it's in our genes that we would, you know, want to live to like mid-adulthood um, so that we would, we would have had time to, to procreate and also kind of like rear our children to be old enough to ensure that they're going to survive. Um, and that was more likely to succeed if you were doing it in a social context in a, in a village or something where there were other people who could help raise your children and make sure they lived. So the kind of warm, fuzzy feelings or even the need to be around other people is like, is almost just explained completely genetically. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah. it's I, like, I mean, sorry, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, I keep thinking of it in terms of just like, oh, there's, the, the 20th century produced a lot of really good theories <laughs> in that like yeah. you can start with any one theory and explain so much. Um, but some, yeah, sometimes it feels like you're looking at it at sort of the wrong resolution. Yeah. I think that maybe that's the problem I'm having. Cause it seems to me like that group, like living together in a group and raising children together, like people don't typically die in mid-adulthood when their children are just old enough to survive on their own. Like either they die like under five or they die old, right? like typically. And like what happens between your children being old enough to sort of basically fend for themselves and your own death is like the creation and perpetuation of culture and the ways that we have to relate to each other and the ways we have to organize those groups of people, which are the only way that people live, um, whether or not it's the most efficient, it's like the only way that people do. Um, and all of those different organizations and all of those different sort of power structures and the stories and the symbols and all of those things that we use to kind of organize and connect ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, like clearly that's a really powerful tool for survival. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's medical knowledge, it's culinary knowledge. It's like knowledge of, it's, it's every single kind of knowledge that is, you know, it's passed from like grandchildren, grandparents to grandchildren. And I do think that the modern era has disrupted that feeling that the way that knowledge is passed is from the older to the younger. It's more mm -hmm. like, 24 year olds coming up with physics theories, disseminating knowledge through the internet to right. like via uh, brand interns. <laughs> well, it's, and so maybe where it kind of, you know, gets more interesting is when you're beyond kind of basic survival stuff, like obviously most of us can't survive like off the grid, truly alone. We need to be around other people. Um, but like the question of getting your sense of meaning from, from your work. Yeah. Um, that's interesting because you could get your sense of meaning from something else. So, you know, so, but why do some people truly feel like, like their career is where they're directing all their energies and, and that is their Casa Sui project. Um, I totally agree with you where I, I was <laughs> simultaneously like, uh, I don't think you really understand this the same way I do. I think the you know like all this stuff but at the same time when he's talking about like the causes sweep project I was like yep yeah, yeah. that <laughs> I get it like I totally yeah. get what you're saying I just don't think it's an illusion I yeah. think it's like really necessary and true and like some people just get it from one thing and some people get it from another but the idea of it is being like this really basic human urge 
it just seems so right. See, this feels like it's just a very Rorschach test kind of kind of thing where like, so I read this little article by Anatole Broyard um, mm -hmm. about this book. It was, you know, it was like years after it came out and he was talking about like, you know, re-encountering re it many years later and still finding it really interesting. And, um, but his read on it was very much like, oh, it's a really kind of optimistic, empowering book because it's about like the ways that we can find meaning in life and, and sort of transcend our own um, mortality through things like, you know, family work and art. And I was like, really? You read it as optimistic? Because <laughs> like I read it as like, Becker saying, oh, all of these projects are doomed to failure because, you know, no matter what you do, you're still going to die. And, um, you know, nobody, nobody knows now what art or philosophies the dinosaurs <laughs> developed um, yeah. and, and, and will inevitably be that forgotten and gone too. Um, so I, it feels to me a little bit that way when you say like, oh, these, these are needs, they're not illusions, they're true. Cause I, I also read him as saying the same thing, like it's an illusion, but it's true. Um, yeah, well, that's kind of the thing I mean about like <laughs> alphabet, like, is he saying yeah. alphabet or is he saying alphabet backward? Are these in fact the same alphabet? Like, yeah. I think that the one place where I actually quibble with him is the question of whether it's sort of a an egotism to desire something mm. of yourself that continues after your life. Because like when I think about it as an essential um, sort of human need on par with companionship in the current day, it's like, yes, I wanna have friends that like me, but that doesn't make me think that that's a desire to um, sort of be better than other people. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think right. that, like I want my ego to be continually uh, extolled and like propped up above other people. I like when I think about wanting to contribute to a future beyond my life, it doesn't feel like egotism to me. It doesn't feel like I want to be more special than other people. <laughs> it feels like just uh um i mean it like when he when he talks about religion it's like just being part of something just being part of a, a group that shares the same symbols is inherently satisfying and like he has some you know hocus pocus freudian reason for that it has <laughs> to do with infancy but still like it basically it's just like just doing something together just singing the same song with the same lyrics feels good with other people. And yeah. I I think that that like Kazasui project, like those words make it sound like it's like your own identity that needs to be projected into the future. Mm -hmm. But it's more like the way it feels to me anyway, is more like I want the results of my actions to be sort of valuable, you know? Like I don't want my name to be written in water but I, mm -hmm. it's not because it's my name, not because like my name is so fancy, but like, um, I don't know. I don't know if I'm actually contradicting myself because I do keep <laughs> on coming back to the idea that it's myself that I want to yeah. have like the name that's not written water. So see, I, I, for me, it does feel, um, ego driven, like Interesting. not, um, not wanting not like wanting to be interpersonally loved or have friends necessarily that, that, that doesn't feel ego driven, even though to some extent, I think it probably is because like when I wasn't seeing people who like me during most of 2020, yeah. when I was just alone all the time, um, I really felt like myself was like dissolving because yeah. it was, it wasn't being reflected back to me in people that I know think I'm worthwhile. Yeah. Um, and it made me feel loathsome and ugly because <laughs> like yeah. there was, yeah. there was no confirmation that I was an okay person. 
Um, so that almost feels like, oh, wait, friendship is on, on some level, not a conscious level, but on some deep level, like, like ego-driven because it made me feel more real. Um, but I mean, very literally, like, I, I keep talking to you about this obsession with my like quote unquote body of work. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, and I keep telling people like, oh yeah, once my seventh book comes out, then I can die because like I <laughs> <laughs> not immediately, like I'm not gonna like seek death, but <laughs> yeah, but it's it's it almost feels like, oh yeah, once I have seven books, um like the prospect of death is is less horrible. Yeah. Like I'll like like as though I can, you know, project past my death and feel like people would talk about it as like, oh yeah, she wrote seven books. That's a real body of work. Um, so that is, and it's, and it's called a body. It's, it's so obviously like this, this projection of, um, of my existence after death, but I mean, I like you, I, I do feel, like climate anxiety threatens even that the same way that, um, you know, that, that religion is, is not as valid as it used to be. It feels like art is not as valid as it used to be as an immortality project. Yeah. Uh, and um, for sure, having children, sorry, mm. kids. Like, I think a lot of people feel that way. And it's like in the newspaper, like, people feel that having children is not as valid as an immortality project (laughs) (laughs) study finds (laughs) finds, exactly um yeah absolutely oh i really liked the um (laughs) so he says like can we say that the evolution of the forebrain has been a mistake (laughs) (laughs) it's really funny well so the things that he says in there about um about what the forebrain does is it's the power to symbolize, to delay experience and to bind time. That idea that what symbols do in some way is to bind time or to delay experience. Um, I thought was interesting that all of those things are sort of one thing, mm-hmm. um, which I, I liked that. Um, and another idea, and this is maybe something that I like cut from the actual podcast, but so he talks about neurosis and sin in a way that I didn't I don't think I fully understood what he meant and I wonder if you understood that I think he was sort of like bumping up against Kierkegaard there and I was going to read the Kierkegaard to just try to understand it better mm. I don't remember the which which section is he talking about sin and I don't really remember that it's like it's like the Kierkegaard section yeah. sorry I just have notes here it says um both sin and neurosis or refusal to recognize cosmic dependence mm. I'm just going to cut this if you don't have anything to say about that. Yeah, I don't remember that part. Okay, no, that's fine. Um, I I did want to just read, like read a sentence just to give a sense of how kind of funny and delightful the writing is. (laughs) Great, yes. Um, (laughs) um, This is the paradox. He is out of nature and hopelessly in it. He is dual, up in the stars and yet housed in a heart-pumping, breath-gasping body that once belonged to a fish and still carries the gill marks to prove it. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Where, <laughs> where are gill marks? <laughs> um, you know? Wait, you mean you don't have gill marks? <laughs> <laughs> is that like, you know, how some people can wiggle their ears and some people can't? Is that like... I mean, I have no idea. I don't know what he means by that at all. <laughs> so you didn't know either. No. I was like, is this one of those things where I found out at the age of 42 that we have gill marks still? No, it's it's just because um, I haven't looked in the mirror since the beginning of the pandemic. So I, don't know if I have gill marks now or not. Oh, I'm jealous. I just, <laughs> no. I, I just saw a picture of myself from 2015 and I was like, holy fuck, I look like 10 years younger. I... I also remember like early pandemic days thinking like, this is the farthest I've ever been from my public self. Like a person who gets dressed every morning, you know, like yeah, that of expressions that I have to sort of signal uh, like public face to other people, um, all of those things. And, and now I'm just like, I don't even remember who that was. Like I, it, it just looks like such a different person to me like my pre-pandemic self. Like I have, so I have found like, person. 
two or three items of clothing in my closet that I bought in either like late 2019 or early 2020 and just never wore because I fully stopped getting dressed. Or if, when I did get dressed, it was like, I would just always wear the exact same things. Um, so yeah, I'm still like finding stuff in my closet that I was like, oh my God, I had no idea I owned this. It's like that. Yeah. It's just a whole like projected future that just kind of disappeared. And the one that is actually going to happen as we develop a public life again, Mm -hmm. if and when that happens, um, it's going to be totally different. It's just like what jeans would have been in style if there had never been the pandemic to confuse everyone's sense of what jeans look good. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I feel like we're, we're truly in a moment of, of no style. Um, I think people keep trying things. But yeah, <laughs> doesn't seem to take. Um, yeah, I sorry. I'm just thinking because I just think it's really interesting. That's all. <laughs> um, um, there's a part where he quotes Goethe. Um, I underlined the hell out of this section. Um, beyond a given point, man is not helped by more knowing, but only by living and doing in a partly self-forgetful way. As good to put it, we must plunge into experience and then reflect on the meaning of it. All reflection and no plunging drives us mad, all plunging and no reflection, and we are brutes. Um, I love that, but I, it, it totally made me think of 2020 because like there, there was no plunging. <laughs> you know, yeah, we like yeah. we could we couldn't plunge into life, and I felt like my inner life and my mental life was so impoverished by the reduced opportunity for like experience in the world. Um, and so you just start reflecting on the same things all the time, and it feels like just the turntable spinning, and it was maddening. Yeah, yeah. All right. That's our episode on the denial of death. Thank you so much for coming back after our break, listeners. And thank you to Elisa and Adam Bear for our music, as always, as well as everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. We love to hear from our listeners, so please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or tweet us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Goodbye till next week.